Section 6 of Uther and Egrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Egrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 1 The Way to Winchester. Chapter 6. With the heathen lost in the distant woods, Peleus and the women essayed the house, leaving the two servants to sentinel the island. The great gates of the porch were ajar. Pushing in, they crossed into the atrium and found it sleepy as solitude. The water in the impluvium gleamed with the gold flanks of the fish that moved through its shadows. Lilies were there, white and wonderful, swooning to their own images in the pool. The tiled floor was rich with color. Venturing further, they found the triclinium untouched. Rich couches and flaming curtains everywhere, gilded chairs and deep-lusted mirrors, urns and flowers. In the chapel, candles were guttered on the altar. Dim lights came down upon a wealth of solemn beauty. Saints, censers, crosses, frescoed walls all green and azure, gold and scarlet. The viridarium, set betwixt chapel and tiblinum, held them dazed with a glowing paradise of flowers. Here were dreamy palms, orange trees like mounts of gold, roses that slept in a deep delight of green. Over all was silence, untainted even by the silken purr of a bird's wing. Genetium and Bower were void of them in turn. Everywhere they found the relics of a swift desertion. The manor folk had gone, as if to the ferry of death, taking no worldly store or sumptuous baggage with them. Not a living thing did they discover, save the fish darting in the water. The cubicula were empty, their couches tumbled, the colina fireless and its hearth cold. Peleus and the women marveled much at the beauty of the place. Its solitude seemed but a ghostly charm to them. As for the girl Morgan, she had taken Peleus into her immediate and especial favor, holding at his side everywhere, a bubble with delight. The luxury of the place pleased her at every glance. Her vanity ran riot like a bee among flowers. She eyed herself furtively in mirrors, and put a rose daintily in her hair, while Peleus was not looking. She had already rifled a cabinet, strung a chain of amethysts about her neck, and poked her fingers into numberless rings. Then she would try the couches, queen it for a moment in some stately chair, or smother her face sensuously in the flowers growing from the urns. All these pretty vaporings were carried through with a most mischievous grace. Egrain, who had seen the girl white and whimpering an hour before, and in deadly horror of the pit, wondered at her, and hated her liberally in her heart. Nor was Peleus glad of the change her presence had wrought for her childish subtleties had no hold on him, and even her thieving seemed insipid. With solemn and shadowy thoughts in his heart, her frivolous worldliness came like some tinkling discord. Egrain seemed to have dimmed her eyes from him beneath the shadow of her hood. Her face was set like the face of a statue, and there was no play of thought upon it. She walked proudly behind the pair, not with them, like one elbowed out of companionship by a vaporing rival. 
In the woman's bower, Morgan found a lute and pounced upon it. One's whole desire seems here, she chattered. This bower suits my fancy like a dream, and I could lodge here a month for love of it. What think you, knight Phileas? I never set foot in a fairer manner. I warrant you there are meat and wine in the cellars. We will feast and have music anon. Peleus's face looked more suited to a burial. Egrain pitied him, for his eyes looked tired and sad. Morgan ran on like a jay. In the chapel she found Egrain a share. Here is your portion, holy sister, she said. Mine the bower, yours the altar. So you see we are all well suited. Come, though, is it not very horrible having to look solemn all day and to wear a grey gown? I should fade in a week inside such a hood. Besides, it makes you look such a color. Egrain could certainly boast a color at that moment that might have warned the woman of her rising fume. Peleus broke in and took up the argument. Men do not consider dress, he said. Everything is fair to the comely. I look into a woman's face and into her eyes and take the measure of her heart. Such is my catechism. But you like to see rich silks and a smile and to hear a laugh at times. What is a girl if she is not gay? No discourtesy to you, sister, but you seem so far set from Sir Peleus and myself. Egrain, lacking patience, flared up like a torch. Ha! Mark you, she said. My habit makes me no coward, nor do I thieve. No discourtesy to you, my dear lady. Morgan set up a thrill of laughter. How true a woman is a nun, quoth she. But you are too severe, too careful. Thieving, too. Why, I may as well have a trinket or so before the place is rifled, even if I take a single ring. And what is more, I have been turned from my own house with hardly a bracelet or a bodkin. Come, Sir Peleus, let us be going. The sister would be at her prayers. I see we but hinder her. Peleus had lost both pity and patience in the last minute. Partisanship is inevitable even in the most trivial differences, and Peleus's frown was strongly for Morgan La Blanche. Perhaps it would be well, madame, said he, if we all went on our knees for the day's deliverance. I cannot see that there is any shame in gratitude. Gratitude? chirped the girl. Gratitude to whom? To the Lord Saviour, madame, and the Mother Virgin. She half laughed in his face, but his eyes sobered her. For a moment she fronted him with an incredulous smirk. Then her glance wavered and lowered to his breast. It held there with a tense stare, while her whole face hardened. Peleus saw her pupils darken, her cheeks flush and pale in a moment. He thought nothing of it or ascribed her distraught and strange look to some sudden shame or shock of penitence. In a trice the smile was back again, and she seemed pert and pleased as ever. "'I see you are too devout for me,' she said with a glib laugh, "'and that I am too wicked a thing for the moment. I will leave you to Sister Egrain till you both have prayed your fill.' Here she laughed again a laugh that made Egrain's cheeks burn. Remember me to St. Anthony, if you may. If I recollect rightly, he was a nice old gentleman 
who cured the fire for a miracle and nearly fell in love with the devil. Till you have done, I will go and gather flowers. Peleus and Egrain looked at one another. A devout child, said the man, and not bred in a nunnery. The world's convent, I should say. For the moment Egrain was almost for telling him of her own hypocrisy, but the thought found her more troubled on that score than she could have guessed. She had acted a lie to the man, and feared his true eyes despite her courage. Another day I will tell him, she thought. It is not so great a sin after all. So they turned and knelt at their devotions. Morgan La Blanche went away like the wind. She ran through atrium and porch with hate free in her eyes, and her child's face twisted into a scowl of temper. In the garden she idled up and down a while in a restless fume, like one whose thoughts bubble bodingly. Sometimes she would smite a lily peevishly with her open hand, or pluck a flower and trample it under her feet as though it had wronged her. Then she would take something from her bosom and stare at it while her lips worked, or while she bit her fingers as though galled by some inward barb. Presently she found her way by a laurel walk to the orchard, and thence by a wicket gate to the island's rim, where one of her men kept watch on the further meadows. She stood under an apple tree, called to him, and beckoned. He came to her, a short, burly fellow with the look of a bull, and brute writ large on his visage. Morgan drew him under the swooping dome of the tree, plucked something that shone from her bosom, and dangled it before his eyes. The cross, she said, almost in a whisper. Galerius, the cross. The man stared at her stupidly. Morgan lifted a finger, ran this way and that, peering into the green glooms and listening. Then she came back to the man, soft-footed, glib as a cat, with the cross of gold gripped in her fingers. She smiled at him, a smile that was almost a leer. Galerius, she said, the knight in the house yonder wears a chain with one cross missing, and the fellow cross matches this. Moreover, his poniard sheath is empty. I marked all this as I stood by him a moment ago. This is the man who slew my lord. The servant's heavy face showed that he understood her well enough now. Tonight, she said, almost skipping under the trees with the intensity of her malice, it shall be with his own poniard. I have it here. Galerius, you have always been a good fellow. The man grinned. Keep silence and leave all to me. I shall need your hand and no more. Nor shall he, said Galerius curtly. Morgan grew suddenly bleak and quiet, with the thought of murder harbored in her heart. Look for yourself, Galerius, she said. See that my eyes have not deceived me. The man must have come upon Lord Madan when he was alone, after our hirelings had deserted the house. He slew him in the winter room. This whelp sent by Aurelius the king. You and I, Galerius, found the cross in my lord's dead hand, and the poniard in his bosom. I warrant you we will level this deed before we hold again for Winchester. Trust my hand, Madame Morgan, quoth the man. If you can have the fellow sleeping, so much the better. One need not strike in a hurry. Leave it to me, 
she said, I will give you your knife and your chance tonight. With that, she sent the fellow back to his watching and threaded the orchard to the manor garden. Peleus and Egrain had long ended their prayers in the chapel. Morgan found them in the atrium, watching the fish in the water and their own reflections in the pool. The girl had quite smothered the bleak look that had held her features in the orchard. She was the same ingenuous, self-pleased little woman whose blue eyes seemed as clear and honest as a sleeping sea in summer. Before, she had flown in Peleus's face for vanity's sake. Now she seemed no less his woman, ready with smiles and childish flattery, and all the pleasantness she could gather. She was at his side again, quick with her eyes and tongue. Probably she guessed that the man despised her, but then that was of no moment now, seeing that it made the secret in her heart more bitter. At noon they dined in the triclinium, with man Galerius to serve. He had ransacked kitchen and pantry, and from the ample store discovered, had spread a sufficient meal. His eyes were ever on Peleus as he waited. There was no doubt about cross or poniard sheath, and Galerius found pleasure in scanning the knight's armor and looking for the place where he might strike. The afternoon proved sultry, and Peleus took his turn in keeping watch by the bank. Cool and placid lay the water in the sun, while vapory heat hung over the meadows and the distant woods. There was still fear lest the heathen might return, thinking to catch the islanders napping. The very abruptness of their retreat had been in itself suspicious, and Peleus was all for caution. Egrain's face seemed to make him more careful of peril. He thought much of her as he paced the green bank for three hours or more, before leaving the duty to Galerius and his fellow. Returning to the manor, he found Egrain cushioned on the tiled floor beside the impluvium, fingering the lute that Morgan Leblanche had found. The latter lady was still in the tablinum, so Egrain said, pilfering and admiring at her leisure, with fruit and a cup of spiced wine ready at her hand. Peleus took post on the opposite side of the pool to Egrain, unarmed himself at his leisure, and began to clean his harness. No task could have pleased Egrain better. She put the lute away, took his helmet on her lap, and burnished it with the corner of her gown. Peleus had sword, breastplate, greaves, and shoulder-pieces beside him. Their eyes often met over the pool as they sat with the scent of lilies in the air, and talked little, but thought the more. Egrain felt queerly happy. There seemed a warm fire in her bosom, a stealthy, happy heat that crept through every atom of her frame like the sap into the fibres of some rich rose. Her heart seemed to unfold itself like a flower in the sun. She looked often at Peleus, and her eyes were very soft and bright. "'A fair place, this,' she said presently, as the man furbished his sword. "'Fair indeed,' said he. "'A rich manner. "'It is strange to me after Evangel.' perhaps more beautiful. Ah, she said with a sudden kindling, I think my whole soul was made for beauty, my whole desire born for fair and lovely things. You will smile at me for a dreamer, but often my thoughts seem to fly through forests, marvellous green glooms all drowned in moonlight. 
I love to hear the wind, to watch the great oaks battling, to see the sea one laugh of gold. Every sunset harrows me into a moan of woe. I can sing to the stars at night, songs such as the woods weave from the voice of a gentle wind, dew-laden, green and lovely. Sometimes I feel faint for sheer love of this fair earth. Peleus's eyes were on her with a strange deep look. His dark face was aglow with a new wonder, as though his soul had flashed to hers. The great sword lay naked and idle in his hands. Often have I felt thus, he said, but my lips could never say it. Thoughts are given to some without words. But the joy is there, she answered with a quiet smile. Joy in beauty? Yes. Ah, girl, a beautiful face or a blaze of gold and scarlet over the western hills are like strange wine to my heart. Yes, yes, it is grand to live, said Egraine. Peleus's head went down over his sword as though in thought. It would seem, he said presently, that beauty is a closed book save to the few. It is good to find a heart that understands. Ah, that know I well, she chimed. In Evangel they had souls like clay. They saw nothing, understood nothing. I think I would rather die than be soul blind. So many folk, said the man, seem to live as though they were ever scanning the bottom of a pot. They never get beyond reflections on appetite. As they talked, Morgan LeBlanche came in from behind the looped curtains with silks, samites, cyclatins, and sarcanets in her arms. She had found some rich chest in the bower accomplice to her fingers, and had reveled gloriously. She sat herself down near Peleus, and began to laugh and chatter like a pleased child. The dainty stuffs were tossed this way and that, gathered into scarfs or frills, spread over her lap, and eyed critically as to color, before being bound in a bale for her journey. Vain and vapid as her behavior seemed, there was more in this little woman's heart than either Peleus or Egraine could have guessed. Her whole mood was false. Foolish as she seemed on the surface, she was more keen, more subtle by far than Egraine, whose whole soul spelt fire and courage. As the day drew towards evening, Morgan became more stiff and silent. Her eyes were bright as the jewels round her neck. They would flash and waver, or fall at times into long, sidelong stares. More than once, Egraine caught the girl's face in hard thought, the pert lips straight and cruel, the eyes hungry and very shallow. It reminded her of Morgan's look in the morning, when she was in such stark fear of the heathen and of death. Yet while she watched her, Smiles and glib vivacity would sweep back again as though there had been but a transient cloud of thought over the girl's face. With the shadows lengthening, they turned, all three of them, into the garden, and found ease on a grass bank beneath the black boughs of a great cedar. The arch of the dark foliage cut the sky into a semicircle of azure. All about them the grass seemed dusted with dim flowers, blue, white, and violet. A rich company of tiger-lilies bowed to the west. 
Dense banks of laurels and cypresses stood like screens of blackest marble, for the sun was sinking. As they lay under the tree, they could look down upon the water, sheeny and glorious in the evening peace. Further still, the willows slept like a mist of green, with the fields elysian and full of sweet stupors, the woods beyond standing solemn and still at the beck of night. Morgan, who had brought the lute with her, began to touch the strings and to sing softly in a thin elfin voice. My heart is open at the hour of night, when lilies swoon and roses kiss in bed. When all the dreams of sad-lipped passion rise, from sleep's blue bowers to die in lover's eyes, come flame, come fire, a woman's bosom is but life's desire. So all my treasures are but held for love in scarlet silks and tapestries of snow. I long, white-bosomed like the stars that sigh, a bed in heaven for love's ecstasy. Come flame, come fire, a woman's bosom is all man's desire. The birds were nestling and gossiping in the laurel bushes, taking lodging for the night. From the topmost pinnacle of the cedar, a thrush, a feathered muezzin, had called the world to prayer. From the mere came the cries of waterfowl. The eerie wail of the lapwing rose in the meadows. Presently all was still and breathless. A vast hush seemed to hold the world. The west was fast dying. Under the cedar the light lurked dim and magic. Morgan's fingers were still hovering on the strings, and she was singing to herself in a whisper, as though she had care for nothing save for that which was in her heart. Peleus and Egrain were quite near each other in the shadow. They had looked into each other's eyes, one long, deep look. Each had turned away troubled, yet with a sudden glory of quick anguish in their hearts. The night seemed very subtle to them, and the whole world sweet. End of Book One, Chapter Six Recording by Geoffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa